passion, drive, and patience. What brings home the winning trophy is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors is everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. From superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED lights, and more, whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to turn your car into the MVP and bring home that win. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. We're back here at Post Wrestling. John Pollock with you. And it's my pleasure to be rejoined by one of our favorite people to speak with, a reporter at MMA Junkie and USA Today, Mike Bond, my fellow Torontonian by way of Vancouver. Mike, how are you doing today? Yes, sir, John. I'm good, man. I've missed you. I've missed talking. It's been a while. I've realized the easiest way to keep in touch with my friends during this pandemic is to interview them. So here you are, Mike. Consider yourself a friend of the show, Mike Bond. I'm glad to hear it, man. It's, uh, yeah, it's crazy times right now. Um, at least we have some very nice weather in Toronto right now. We're experiencing a little bit of that. So, did, man, do you see that lightning the other night? That was some of the craziest stuff I've ever seen. I was, I missed the lightning portion of it, but we got a hell of a storm the other night, a rainstorm that, uh, the weather has been insane in Toronto over the last month. We've seen everything from, Days where it's hitting like 30 plus Celsius to like, it wasn't that many weeks ago we were getting snow in, <laughs> in, in May. It's, it's some of the most bipolar weather I've ever experienced in anywhere I've lived. So for someone like yourself, Mike, that you are typically doing a lot of traveling, what has the last three months uh, been like for you? Because, you know, being in Canada, like our borders are closed. Has it been an adjustment period for you on the work front? Uh, a little bit, yeah. I mean, we kind of have a pretty good routine of, you know, I've obviously experienced plenty of fight weeks sitting at home. I've experienced plenty on the road, so I kind of know what it's like. But obviously, you know, the biggest adjustment period was when we were having no events at all mm-hmm. for that stretch. And, you know, you're having to look at other ideas for content and you don't have that, you know, typical fight week, whether you're on the ground there or someone else's, that content, you know, that's coming in, you know, media day interviews, weigh-in stuff, obviously the fight night stuff. So that was interesting. I mean, we haven't had a stretch that long without a UFC event in you know a decade plus or something like that. I don't even know how long it's been. It's crazy. So uh, yeah, it was a little bit of a challenge, but I think we did a pretty good job of coming up with you know some content to get through it and doing a lot of interviews with our staff. And I think it's kind of allowed us to expand in a way i'm sure you know how it is there's a million things you want to do you have these ideas and you want to try to execute them but it's just such a go 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 thing i mean you're obviously dealing with pro wrestling and mma too so uh, you know it's like twice the amount of content you're sifting through and you want to get to these certain ideas but you just don't have the time and that gave us the time to do certain things so uh, it was kind of beneficial in some ways uh, so I can't, you know, can't be too mad at that, but obviously I, I definitely do miss the road, going to the events, seeing the people, but I don't even know if I'd want to go to one of the shows right now. You don't even get to see anyone, see any of the fighters, any of the fellow media. You're, you know, trapped in your hotel room, getting COVID tests, supposed to be, you know, keeping your social distance. So even if you were going to the events, the fight week experience is drastically different than what we were getting up till, you know, the pandemic hit. 
Yeah, I was going to ask you that question, like if you were US based, because, you know, for myself, like I look at it from the standpoint that if I had the option of going to cover these events, I would say that there would probably be if this were five years ago, I think I'd be pretty readily available to do it, even with a certain level of risk. Now with like, uh, you know, I have a two year old, it's just a different set of circumstances. I think I'd be much more uh, concerned about going, um, you yourself, you know, not having, you know, a wife or a child, what would your comfort level be right now? Would, would it be something that you would have to really think about if you would want to uh, go cover these events? If that were an option for you, it's, it's really not being here in Canada. Yeah, I think it would be a tough choice. I mean, I think you kind of laid out well, obviously the risks for me are a little bit lower, you know, not having to, I'm not living with my parents or anything who are a little bit older. So there's not that risk. I don't have any young children, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I think obviously the, the biggest worry on my side is like going through an airport right now. I think that would be really the only hiccup. I mean, once you're on the ground and actually there, it seems like the UFC has done a pretty fantastic job and you're almost getting you know an upgrade because the people like john morgan who's living in vegas and he's covering these vegas events for us he's getting two covid tests a week at this point you know he had to go get one this morning uh for his clearance to get to the weigh-ins tomorrow morning and then on saturday the fight night procedure fight day procedure he has to go to the host hotel at 7 a.m on saturday get a COVID test, then they put him in a hotel room where he has to stay and self-isolate until the uh, results come back and until the fight card starts, at at which point they bring the media over to the UFC Apex and they're able to do their coverage and do physical distance scrums where they're all in separate tables and stuff. But basically, if you're going to cover a UFC event, you're getting tested twice in the lead up to it. So I think in that way, maybe you're getting some answers about any potential concerns but we know as well that you know it can take up to like two weeks to show up and there's all these different things so there is a level of risk um i think if they wanted me to be there and we felt it was necessary to have me there i would go but i don't think it's super needed at the moment we obviously have people in vegas not just john morgan but ken hathaway as well but um, if the call came in to go to fight island wherever the hell on this earth that may be i think i'd maybe have to ponder that a little more I think what this whole period tells us is that uh, back in March, it was a very relevant question for Mark Ramondi. Oh, dude. And I was there at that event. It's crazy just to think back of how close that was. I mean, I was in Vegas for a week on that fight week because we had a uh, MMA junkie like summit where we brought in the majority of our staff for like conferences and stuff. So I had gone straight from the card in Norfolk uh, to Vegas and spent a week there. And just thinking back of that, that week, you know, doing some gambling touching cards poker chips like i'm almost surprised in some ways that i didn't end up getting sick or anything because it started getting real bad like i came home and then things started to shut down 10 or so days later so i was kind of right in the precipice and you just think of what it's like being a casino thinking back now like it would you know that's a different world at that point that's uh you know bc before covid when you're l- looking at, let's say, you know, a couple months in the future and slowly they're starting to reintroduce fans, what do you think? Is it going to be a significant lag between, um, just is it going to be a case that the next, like a major fight card, they're going to fill an arena or do you think it's going to be quite a while before a large number of fans have that comfort level to be able to go to an arena, um, for, for a major UFC card, just for instance? 
I don't know, man. Like, I don't know what to think about this world right now. We get into all these things. Like, we obviously want to have our social distancing and stuff. But you look at these protests that are going around the world right now. There's thousands of people, like, violating basically everything we've been told not to do in terms of being in proximity and, you know, having elders and children and not wearing masks and stuff and touching and all that. So, like, I don't really know what it's going to be like and how that's going to evolve. But you kind of look at that. And if people are, you know, determined to go do something, clearly, they're willing to be around other people. So I think it's more going to be on the, you know, promoters and all that kind of stuff to decide how to keep it safe for everyone. But I think this has shown that people are willing to go outside, willing to go to things, willing to be in close proximity to other people, especially if it's for something they really care about, whether it's, you know, a protest or something or enjoying a sport that they love. So uh, I could see them getting some fans in there. I don't know how they're going to do it. I mean, I was thinking like Dana's saying, I don't want to do a Conor McGregor fight without a gate. Um, you could get like, you know, 50 people, a hundred people, something like that, maybe even more. And who's to say someone wouldn't pay $20,000 for a ticket for a Conor McGregor fight, some high roller out there who really wants to see it. So I think there's possibilities and ways to make it work and to make up money. But I just can't imagine anytime soon having like 15,000 people in an arena like we normally would. Uh, I predicted basically when this all started, we weren't going to have crowds basically at any sport whatsoever in 2020. And that's looking like a pretty decent call right now. I mean, we might get some small crowds. I know for like European soccer and stuff and some other places, they've let like very limited people in. But um, I, I don't know if the idea of having what we're used to just seems like such a far gone concept at this point. I really don't know what it's going to, how long it's going to be till we get that again. The NFL is going to be an interesting one when it comes back yeah. and what, cause I feel they are going to be the most aggressive when it comes to wanting to have bands there and what kind of domino effect that has or what kind of pushback that has from other leagues. Like the next couple of months are going to be very interesting because we have the unique perspective of looking at, you know, on the pro wrestling side and of MMA that these promotions have the luxury of not having to go through uh, any kind of union or association that uh, players in sports leagues have that layer of protection where it's going to be a negotiation to get us back onto the field, back onto the ice, back onto the court. It's not that case in MMA or pro wrestling. Yeah, definitely not. I mean, that's they Dana White and the other promoters are really able to just kind of do it on the whim. And you know, if they if you're a fighter who wants to compete or a pro wrestler or whoever, I guess you know you have that option. And according to Dana White, even though uh, you know there's been some contradictory statements with the whole Stipe Miocic thing and whatnot, but uh, he said if you don't want to fight, you don't have to fight. So I guess it's kind of on the athlete. They do have some say. It's not like anyone's being forced in there without a union. But yeah, obviously. MMA promoters, pro wrestling promoters have luxuries that these bigger sports leagues don't. So, um, yeah, I think Dana White has said already on the record, we're going to be the first one back with a crowd whenever there's a place that opens that we're allowed to have a crowd. We're gonna, we're going there right away. So, uh, Dana White has that idea in his mind and I wouldn't be surprised if he ends up executing it. Uh, when we go back to last month with UFC 249, uh, the, the number that was reported by Sports Business Journal, journal of 700,000 buys, that was certainly 
above what I expected for that show. Um, it was a loaded card. You had, you know, from a action standpoint, like it looked as deep a card as UFC has run in years. Uh, what was your reaction to that number? Because it seemed to be, it's going to be one of two things. Either it's going to be very difficult to run a pay-per-view in these economic times, or it's, um, an audience that is starved for a major event. And 249 was certainly a major event. And we saw it was a case of, of the latter, not the former. Yeah, I think it was just all those things you said there, a product of good timing. Um, I think maybe the idea of no one's willing to spend this money during these times was a may- maybe a little overthought. Obviously, there was a good amount of people that were willing to spend that money. I know for a fact people that don't ordinarily talk to me about MMA were bringing up that card to me in advance of it. So that's always kind of a good sign in terms of how the exposure is going. Um, I think in all fairness, the UFC did a pretty good job promoting it. Dana White pulled out the old line, I never guarantee a fight's going to be amazing, but I guarantee Ferguson versus Gaethje is going to be amazing. And that's more or less when it ended up being. So, uh, yeah, I think it was a recipe that just worked pretty well at the time. I, I'm sure we'll get into Saturday's card, UFC 250. I think that it's fair to say the expectations are uh, not comparable in terms of the type of numbers they're going to get there. Obviously, the card isn't of the same quality. But, yeah, I think it just all came together nicely for the UFC. They had those fights on ESPN. Uh, they had a great featured prelim with Don Cerrone and Anthony Pettis, and those prelims are pretty strong too, so it kind of propped up the idea. If you wanted to see more fights, you had the opportunity to buy that main card, and it kind of worked out for them. So um, I think that was just kind of a product of really, I guess, obviously not real-life speaking, perfect circumstances, but for the UFC and getting that by, it was kind of a, a perfect storm for them and able to pull that off. So I don't see that being repeated anytime in the near future, but I think for that particular show at that particular time, uh, it ended up working out for them. Well, looking at this Saturday, I mean, this is a card that in regular times, this is not doing any kind of a big number, but do you think it gets any kind of a bump given how 249 got a bit of a bump or do you feel that this is going to be one that it's this is going to perform relatively similar to what this card would have done in a a regular economic climate six months ago yeah i think that's the case and i think it's partially on the ufc like i've seen little to no promotion for this event i haven't seen and obviously fight we're not there yet i think thursday is the day that obviously media day goes down dana white does his rounds all that kind of stuff so i expect that there'll be some push but I'm definitely not feeling any even semblance of the same vibes I was getting for UFC 249. Obviously, Amanda Nunes is amazing, a female GOAT. Uh, For us Canadians, there's something to get excited about there and Felicia Spencer, but she's obviously got a massive task ahead of her and Nunes. And then there's some great fights on the uh, the undercard in terms of just significance for the division. Obviously, Corey Sandhagen versus Aljamain Sterling being chief among them. But this is definitely one that's more for the hardcores. Uh, I would be pretty surprised if this did like a um, dec- you know, above average number for the UFC. I think it's going to be on the rougher side, but obviously we know for them it doesn't really make too much of a difference because they're going to get uh, the same feed from ESPN as they would if it did you know, a bigger buy. So uh, right now we're just in these times of cobbling it together and throwing it out there. But yeah, I'm not expecting anything higher than this fight would normally get because of these times just because it's, it's – I don't think it's being promoted the best, honestly. I- I'm really rooting for the main event to go the full five because if there is a stoppage uh, victory for Amanda Nunez, I am just bracing for the uh, how many people think that they have the most clever reaction with just a splurge of 
by Felicia's on, <laughs> on your timeline because goddamn, uh, that that's what we could be in store for. I know well, that this card. I know you have that one set up in your drafts. So don't even lie. So <laughs> <laughs> tweet deck is for Mike. Uh, you know there are some interest. I think most of all the bantamweight picture is a really interesting one off the heels of Henry Cejudo and whatever he has planned for himself. But I mean we have you know four of the top bantamweights, including Cody Garbrandt coming back. That. I mean, you would think a guy who has not had a win since 2016 would not be in title contention, but I think, Mike, we have followed this enough to know Cody Garbrandt gets an impressive win. I do not discount this guy being immediately thrust into that uh, flyweight plans be damned. I think that Cody Garbrandt, it could be um, two radically different directions based on his performance uh, on Saturday, because when you look at the crop of bantamweights and you're looking at uh, star power and a name value attached to it. Uh, Cody Garbrandt holds a lot in that in that department, for sure. And especially if we do get this Aldo versus Peter Yan fight, and Peter Yan wins, him and Cody Garbrandt have had some beef. You know, there's been exchanges on Twitter. They got into a physical uh, altercation of sorts, or had to be separated at a recent UFC event. I can't remember exactly what show it was, but uh, might have been the one where Yan fought Faber. But yeah, I mean, Garbrandt is still that guy. I mean, it's crazy to think. It's been so long since he won a fight, three-plus years, December 2016. I mean, the last time this guy won a fight was the last time Ronda Rousey competed in MMA. So that's just kind of startling to think about. So, um, yeah, I mean, Cody Garbrandt does still have that name. Obviously, the UFC still values him. The fact that his fight against the Sun Sal was featured on the Countdown show and there was no sign of Sterling and Sandhagen on there, I think that kind of speaks in, uh, in spades in a lot of ways. I think it's really unfortunate for those other guys, but we know how the UFC works, especially in these times. They want to, you know, sell what they can. And could you imagine, though, if uh, <laughs> Cody Garbrandt did get that belt back and then TJ Dillashaw returns from suspension and gets back in that mix and <laughs> they fight again? I mean, there's some interesting, a million interesting things at Bantamweight. But, yeah, I think Cody Garbrandt definitely uh, has the inside track on that if he can show up and perform. But I think it needs to be uh, something somewhat spectacular and Rafael Sensao is one of the hardest dudes in bantamweight to look spectacular against. So uh, I guess Marlon Moraes aside. So yeah, it's going to be a uphill climb. But if Cody can turn back the clock and turn in a vintage performance, I think we could most definitely see that much to the chagrin of all those other top guys at 135. Do you like the idea of Garbrandt entertaining the notion of going down to flyweight? And if he is not successful on Saturday, um, how high is your optimism that that is something that he ends up attempting? I think maybe if he loses, it's happening because then like what direction do you turn at that point? Uh, it's going to be a real rough spot for him, especially if it's like a bad loss or something. But In, in such a uh, super deep division too. I mean, a loss really sets you back. For sure. But man, like, you know, the problem that we've seen with Cody Garbrandt, I guess, is being, you know, the chin, the ability to take that big shot. And if he lost with a knockout again, you know, I don't see how taking 10 extra pounds off your body is going to improve your durability or stuff like that. We've obviously seen some instances of guys going down and, you know, them being able to still take a hit, but that just doesn't seem like a great idea to me. And I think really the, the whole idea of him going to flyweight stemmed from some sort of Twitter beef he had with Henry Cejudo. They were going back and forth and without that fight there, I mean, I just don't really see maybe, 
I guess just purely for the fresh coat of paint and maybe it puts him back in the race uh, to fight for a title and a division that needs big names. But like, I I mean, I guess a fight with Joseph Benavidez has a bit of a interesting storyline, you know, former team alpha male teammates, all that kind of stuff. Obviously Benavidez not with that team anymore. Uh, you could sell that fight, but I mean, Cody Garbrandt versus Davidson Figueredo, that really doesn't do a whole lot for me. I mean, I think in the cage, that sounds like a pretty fun fight, but uh, Mar- yeah. marquee wise, you're right. Like that, uh, you take Henry Cejudo out of, out of both weight divisions. And I think that that certainly uh, may lead to a Cody Garbrandt reassessing things. And I think if he looks very good in this fight, I, I don't see him leaving bantamweight at that time because I think he can leapfrog a lot of people just because of who he is. And that would be very frustrating if a, Aljamain Sterling or Corey Sandhagen is the one to be leapfrogged, but we are talking about a division that is about to have a title fight involving a guy who's 0-1 in the division. That's just the reality of of fight ma- of matchmaking. Yeah, 100%. I mean, all those loss, I think, two in a row, and yeah, it's just... It's crazy, but we know how the UFC operates at this point. We've seen it a million times, so it would not surprise me at all. But I hope for you know the sake of these guys who have been putting in the work that uh, they go you know the more legitimate direction. But I think we've kind of already seen their their approach here by putting Cody in the co-main event, which you know, card placement isn't the end of the world, but I think the promotion, I guess as well, like the fact that they're getting featured on the countdown show and getting, you know, the embedded and all that kind of stuff uh, really speaks volumes. So um, yeah, nothing really surprising there, I guess. Did you mean to say the Cody main event? (laughs) Moving on Uh, in the main (laughs) event, uh, you know, you never want, I, I, I have watched way too many fights that play out very different from expectations going in. So I certainly do not dismiss Felicia Spencer here. And as someone that I think you want to see this featherweight division thrive, you know, chaos is a great way to have a division thrive. Would it be to the division's benefit for a massive upset on Saturday? And how small of a chance do you see that happening? Yeah, it would be good for sure. I mean, I, you would have an immediate rematch right there. I mean, in a you'd have a story in the featherweight division, which it sorely needs at the moment. I mean, this is as nondescript a challenger as you have, and it's just the division just does not have that kind of um, juice behind it with any kind of story. And I think that's certainly would come out with a with a major upset here. Yeah, it's just kind of worrisome though. Like, how does you have a and a promotable fight and a rematch if Felicia were to win. But then what? I mean, I guess if Amanda wins, then you could do a trilogy. And that's probably the direction of the division for the next like year and a half, two years. But uh, I think the thing that we've seen about like, I guess the idea of her fighting like a Holly Holm or a Jermaine Durand to me at 45, uh, if that was the case, or even at 35, it's like, oh, these fighters can be at 45 as well. And maybe, you know, you do a rematch with Amanda in another division and there's these different options. Felicia Spencer isn't making 135 ever, I don't think. So uh, it's basically limited to this division, but it does still need a storyline. I just hope if Felicia win that it didn't convince, it wouldn't convince the UFC to make some sort of move. But I think she does have an opportunity here. For sure. Amanda Nunes already postponed this fight once. I mean, I think all completely within her right, she needed more time. But it is a interesting time in her life. I mean, Nina Ansaroff is about to have their child, I think, in September. Mm-hmm. Uh, this will be her last fight as uh, before being a mother, which is kind of interesting as well. You wonder what the level of distraction has been. Um, 
Obviously, having that extra 10-pound cushion allows you to maybe not work quite as hard as you need to in order when you're making 135. So I think there's some little elements you can pick apart here that maybe give Felicia Spencer a chance, but you're also digging kind of deep there. I mean, we're not talking about skill set versus skill set, but if we want to go in that direction, uh, Amanda Nunes, I don't think, looked the best in her last fight against Jermaine Durandamy. I think since becoming champion, one of her not not the best performances overall. I mean, Valentina Shevchenko gave her a closer fight, but that was just more high-level competitiveness. I think she looked a little more sloppy against Jermaine. So, and I think where she did look sloppy was on the ground, and that's where Felicia Spencer is at her absolute best, and she is most definitely a 145-er, and she has a chin on her. She's durable. We saw that against Cyborg. So, who knows, man? I mean, I think it's going to take the perfect storm for her to go in there and get this win, but I wouldn't say it's impossible. I just think it's a very, very steep uphill climb, but it would be cool to have a Canadian champion again, that's for sure. And we, we mentioned like kind of the, the bantamweight stories here. It'll, it's also going to feature uh, Sean O'Malley coming back after that great return back in March. He's taken on Eddie Wineland, who, uh, you know, a very seasoned veteran um, at 36. I think you kind of see the design of this uh, style of fight that could certainly um, just take Sean O'Malley up another notch. But uh, what do you see in Sean O'Malley uh, long term? He's young. He just missed two years, which in, in a strange way might have been uh, unintended benefit for him. But he's someone that I think has an enormous potential. The question is, what is the upside? And they seem to be bringing him along at, at a good pace and not putting him to, to the, you know, the sharks immediately. But Eddie Wineland, to me, a, a very good test for him at this stage of his career. 100%. Eddie Wineland, uh, the first WEC bantamweight champion, I believe, back in the day, like 2006 or something like that. So that guy has been around for ages. I mean, I remember him making his UFC debut uh, in a really great fight with Uriah Faber, mm-hmm. and that was in like 2011 or something. So he's yeah. been around most definitely. Uh, I, it's an appropriate step up. I think what you were saying about Sean O'Malley there was right on point. I have talked to some people uh, close to him, and that was leading into the last fight. I think that was at 247 or 248, whatever the one in uh, the March pay-per-view was where he last fought. And they were saying that that time off was actually really beneficial for him because they thought not only did it allow him to you know get his uh, mind back on track after this whole USADA situation that he had where he was ultimately you know more or less cleared of wrongdoing, but there was that hype train was steaming after that Andre Sukumtov fight where he you know had that great moment with Joe Rogan laying on his back doing the interview. Uh, that was just I think he was starting to really shine at that moment, and I think maybe the UFC was going to put him into a situation that was maybe a little too much for him at the time. And this time off gave him the opportunity to step back. Uh, realize fighting isn't the only thing in his life and that he needs to move on. And, you know, there's other elements that needs to go into making his happiness. And I think that's in turn allowed him to come back a better fighter and the UFC to slow their role on pushing him a little bit. And I think that was a perfect matchup that he had last time around to come in. I think this is a really great step up too. Eddie Wineland's no joke. He can absolutely win this fight, but this is where we're going to find out how legit Sean O'Malley is. Is he just, you know, a fun uh, guy with some flashy striking and et cetera, et cetera. Or is he really capable of beating uh, legitimate established guys? I think, this is Sean O'Malley's 12th fight. It's something like Eddie Wineland's, like 40 seconds. So uh, winning this fight would be definitely big for Sean O'Malley and I think a sign that it's a bright future for him for sure. Yeah, uh, it, it's a card that I can definitely see people, you know, balking at the price tag attached to it. But I, I think on paper, like I think we'll come out of Saturday with a lot of 
engaging fights. I like, I, I see on paper, like, number of interesting stories here. I think that we'll get some very good fights. I'm intrigued by all the bantamweight fights and, you know, the main event. It's, it's certainly you, you have your expectation of what will happen, but I think that this as a card, um, I'm by, by no means dismissing it. Action-wise. Oh, definitely not. I mean, just look at some of the prelims, like Eddie Wine, or uh, sorry, Eddie Wine, Eddie Evan Dunham coming back from retirement, uh, fighting Gilbert Burns' brother, Herbert Burns. That's fun. Uh, Alonzo Menofield, who, in my opinion, is one of the best prospects in the light heavyweight division, comes from Fortis MMA, which is obviously a team that's done some really great things of late. So uh, he's a guy that I could see in title contention in a couple of years right now. I think light heavyweight's uh, division that's really kind of starting to come together it looks tough because john jones is on the top but you look at some of these guys like menafield and uh last weekend we had some other uh what was that jamal hill that had a great performance as well so um yeah that's a division i'm interested in uh formiga and alex perez the flyweights unsurprisingly getting buried on the prelims here as well but the, the one that does stand out to me on the prelim cards is uh cody stamen and brian kelleher which is essentially two bantamweights fighting at featherweight so that kind of goes into the the bantamweight mix there a little bit uh brian keller fighting for the second time in 24 days i think he fought may 13 as well so that's kind of fun and then cody stamen i don't know if you saw uh this interview he did earlier this week with uh mma junkie george uh, from MMA Junkie Radio over here, but he basically said that his 19-year-old brother suddenly passed away last week. Really yeah, unsurprising. Um, he didn't really get into exactly what happened. Basically, just said that it was something that was really unexpected and shocking. So all the credit for him uh, in the world really being able to move forward with that and still get in there and try to honor his brother by fighting. I can't possibly imagine how difficult of a moment that would be. Uh, Brian Kelleher even taking to Twitter uh, as well and you know, expressing his sympathies and saying, you know, it's going to be uh, tough for him to participate in that fight as well. So a lot of emotion going into that one. So uh, there is some meat on the bone on this undercard as well. I think, Hardcore fans are probably the people that are mostly invested. I Like we kind of talked about earlier, I don't think this is a big pay-per-view buy rate or anything. But if you're a person that enjoys MMA, I'll, like you'll sit back and I think this card will give you some good entertainment on your Saturday night. From the production standpoint, I mean, you've been cage side for so many fights. Uh, what has the experience been like watching these empty arena shows for you? Um, the pros, the cons, what's worked, what hasn't worked? I like it, honestly. I mean, the pros is you don't have to listen to people woo 24 hours you know, a day during these entire fight cards. Like, I, I do enjoy it, honestly. Um, the crowd obviously brings some element to that can be, can't be matched in any sort of situation. But honestly, I think in terms of like the other sports, uh, this is something that works more so than anything. I no, think it's pretty- it's night and day to to pro wrestling, Mike. Like they have really gone through many iterations. Now they're using people like in the crowd to enhance the noise oh, really? because like the dead atmosphere was just a killer on those shows. And granted, very different between pro wrestling and MMA. I've had zero issue with the UFC presentation. I think it's actually been fairly engaging. Like I, it has not been a detriment to me at all. Yeah, I haven't. I watched WrestleMania and. Most of the other stuff is just being like Twitter clips or obviously mm-hmm. like following you and listening to, you know, the great work you and Wade do and stuff like that. Great but answer. Like in terms of the actual watching, I haven't seen a ton of it, but I watched uh, WrestleMania and I thought that was just such a bizarre experience. It really 
I don't know. I could not get into it like you typically would. Um, so that was kind of strange. But MMA, I think it works more. So like, I think it's going to be weird watching the NBA when yeah. they come back soon, like with no crowd. And I don't know what type of setup they're going to have in terms of like the size of the venue, uh, what it's going to look like. Is it going to look like you just threw like a, some television uh, equipment into like your high school gym or is it going to look more so like a stadium? So I think that's interesting. But the UFC, I think, this is one of the things that works, honestly. Like, I don't mind it. Uh, they can mic the cage well. Uh, you can hear the corners more clearly. You can hear the shots. I think it just makes it a little more tense in some ways. Makes it feel, you know, like it's taking place in a warehouse or something like that. I watched the Titan FC show they had the other night that was on Fight Pass that was literally in a warehouse. And, like, the lights were shining down so bright on the guys. You could tell they said the air conditioning was broken. I mean, I feel like this is what MMA is supposed to be, just kind of a gong show in that sense. So uh, it kind of feels uh, a little more dirty in a way, like you're just a voyeur watching two guys beat the crap out of each other. So um, I don't know. I think I enjoy it. We'll get back to live crowds at some point in the future, and that'll be its own thing as well. But I think that's what's fun about MMA and the sport is you can do so many different things with it, and it's kind of a different experience. Uh, every time you watch it, if the production wants it to be. So I think uh, overall, I don't really have much issues with it at all, honestly. What's more likely on Saturday? Uh, Joe Rogan making his way into the cage for an interview or Dana White wearing a mask? Whew, man. More I don't like- think we're getting either, but of What's the two, like what would you be more likely? I think probably Joe Rogan. I don't think, I mean, I don't think Dana's stepping outside of that room. He's not going to be seen on camera wearing a mask. I think that's safe to say at this point, um, Joe Rogan might go rogue, but I don't think that happens either. But if I had to pick gun to my head, I think uh, Joe Rogan <laughs> is the more likely option. Final thing before we uh, get out of here, Mike, uh, would be remiss not to talk about John Jones, who has been uh, certainly did not get the memo about uh, staying out of the news cycle during this pandemic. <laughs> I mean, when you look at, you know, back to the event you were referencing where he fought Dominic Reyes, that was, you know, their last event with, with fans before the whole shutdown occurred. Uh, in that time, we have had the arrest. We have had the back and forth with Dana White, the, uh, well, from John Jones perspective, relinquishing the title. And now this guy has become Albuquerque, New Mexico community leader. It's been quite the, uh, several chapters in the saga that is John Jones career and life. Uh, where do you stand today in terms of the, the next move, uh, for John Jones when it comes to, uh, his relationship with the UFC and how this ultimately gets solved between the two sides? I don't know, man. This is just such a, a pickle. Dana White is doing his typical thing now. Uh, I think he's done some interviews today, yesterday, where he's basically now, I think the first person he gave a quote to was, uh, the Canadian press, which I thought was kind of interesting, but, Uh, basically he's now saying John Jones has made enough money. He can walk away. If you don't have the passion to continue fighting, uh, you know, you can do this, you can do that. So he is, I think it's a lot of it's going to fall on John Jones and what he wants to do. I think as Dana White has shown, he is willing to let the biggest stars in the sport walk away. If need be George St. Pierre being a Mm -hmm. chief example of stuff that we've seen. And this is not anything new. I mean, we've seen, many versions of this over the years there's being heat between Dana White and John Jones in the past as well so I think ultimately John Jones in his heart is not ready to stop fighting I think he feels he has more to give and there's more things he wants to accomplish and I think the UFC has done a good job of 
uh, breaking his spirit a little bit on that front. But I do think that fire inside him burns, and he's going to find a way to get back in there fighting. Um, I don't know about relinquishing the title. I don't know what the benefit of that is from his perspective. Maybe you can, you know, give an opinion on what you think that could be. Cause I really don't know. Like he's just putting him, I guess on the one side of it, he is not a champion. He could fight out his contract and become a free agent in that way. That really seems like the upside, but I don't know what his contract looks like. Is he giving, how much money is he giving up by going into a fight? Not as the champion. Um, so that's kind of an interesting factor as well. It's just, I don't know. It really sucks. I mean, you can think whatever you want to think of John Jones, but the fact that the UFC has managed to cast out and some of it's been self-inflicted with John. I mean, this guy changes his mind constantly. He's tweeting one thing and then contradicting himself the next day and then contradicting himself again the next day. So in some way I get why it's like frustrating from the UFC side or the fan side or whatever, but, uh, this guy, at the end of the day, is still the best fighter in the world, uh, in my opinion, the best fighter the UFC and MMA has ever had. So for them to kind of have him in this situation where there's this bitterness over uh, just giving the guy a bump in pay is kind of really unfortunate to see. And I hope they do get smoothed over, but I don't really see a major end in sight at this point. Dana White is entrenched in his view, and John Jones doesn't want to be viewed as someone who... Uh, basically, you know, bent to the power of the UFC and Dana White. So I, I think right now we're almost at a standstill, and I'm curious to see uh, who kind of box first in this game of chicken. Yeah, that's what it is. I think it's a really interesting power play on both sides and comes at a time when I think if you are a John Jones, you do have, to me, less leverage than you did several years ago with this ESPN Plus deal where the UFC, I mean, they are – getting a guaranteed amount from ESPN for every pay-per-view. So, I mean, is it great to have John Jones? Sure. And it's interesting to see John Jones kind of include ESPN in this whole conversation because they're the ones that stand to gain the most by John Jones uh, fighting and doing business above, you know, a certain level. So it's, to me, an interesting player in all of this is ESPN. And do they play referee here to try and smooth things over? Because they certainly have an incentive to have John Jones fighting on their cards. I'm sure when they got that number last month with 700,000 buys for Tony Ferguson and Justin Gaethje, um, their eyes must be just, you know, widening at the shot of John Jones fighting during this era where people seem to be very hungry for big UFC events and John Jones would represent that as well. I think ultimately for John, it's to his best interest to fight for UFC where he can make the most. But it's also, I think, refreshing whenever you see people of that stature testing the limits of what power you can exude because a lot of these guys, they have, they have just had to go with what, when the UFC made this decision with ESPN plus, it's like John Jones goes from a guy making a percentage of pay per view buys. And you're now going to this model where it's suddenly, at the time, way less subscribers than your big pay-per-view universe. And, you know, the economics are a huge part of this that uh, John Jones is kind of caught in the middle of that stands to lose or gain based on a lot of these big business decisions UFC makes. So I think ultimately the sides come together, but it's a really fascinating kind of power play that for our enjoyment is playing out in the public. Yeah, 
Uh, it's just like, if you go to the crux of the issue, it's John Jones. If he's being sincere and we believe what he's saying, he wants to make more money to move to heavyweight and fight Francis Ngannou, which seems a, like a completely legitimate perspective. And then we get into the situation where Dana White's claiming that he's asking for X amount of money and John Jones claims that's not true. And I get it. Like if you're John Jones, you want more money to move up to heavyweight you're taking the bigger risk you're fighting a bigger guy i think that's more than worthy he claims that the ufc told him that when he does move up to heavyweight he will get a bump in pay uh but i also understand the ufc's side i mean they it's rough times right now i mean obviously they're still an extremely profitable company but i can understand why they don't want to give out handout or like you know a bump in pay in that sort of sense because they're in a lot of ways, the ones assuming a lot of the risk. I mean, if they're getting the same pay-per-view buy rate or like money from ESPN and they're giving John Jones, there's no guarantees. Like we'd imagine that it would do a very strong number, but there's no guarantees. It sells extremely well. We don't know. And then for them to offload all this money to John Jones up front, I can understand why they don't want to do that without a hundred percent guarantee that they're going to make this money back when they can, go and have him fight Jan Blachowicz and they're going to get the same uh, amount of money from ESPN, whether, you know, regardless. So I can understand why they're not super keen and jumping out of their shoes to make that happen. But it just contradicts what we've heard from Dana White over these past two decades or so. We make the fights the fans want to see the most. And this is a fight the fans really want to see. And it seems like he's not willing to do what it takes to make it happen, uh, whether John Jones's requests are, uh, too extraordinary or not, but it's definitely like John Jones coming back and fighting Jan Blachowicz or even rematching Dominic Reyes, which is a fight that was pretty hot at one point. Uh, I don't think it's going to feel like a letdown. I mean, we want to see John Jones at heavyweight. He's clearly or apparently willing to make that move that he, we want to see him do for so long. And then when he's actually willing to commit to it, uh, this <laughs> ends up happening, which is just crazy. I just, I don't know. I don't know where it's going to go. I don't understand why Dana White had to like escalate it publicly. And now he's just you know made an enemy of his best fighter. And I just don't see what the advantage is really from the UFC side. They could have let John Jones tweet his things, step back, and we would have forgot about it two days later. But it's just gone back and forth and it continues to go back and forth. And it's this story that's kind of consuming so much of the headlines in the MMA space that uh, you know, I don't think we're just going to see Dana White fold at this point because uh, we just know that's not the person he is. Last thing, uh, once you get off with us, you've got the UFC 250 Media Day coming up. Can you tell us a bit about uh, what this process is like uh, during uh, the whole pandemic of doing a virtual media day? And are there uh, aspects of it that you prefer over traditional media day that I participated in enough that they are – like a circus, and it can be rather stressful trying to uh, uh, maneuver everyone in in person. Yeah, um, I don't love it, for being honest. I mean, the fact that obviously it's everyone getting the exact same content. Mm-hmm. So there's. That. Are, are you on with other people, or do you get your own one on one time? How how does that you work? Know, you're on with people, so basically oh. you like a dial a number, and then uh, once you're within the media day, you basically like click a button, it puts you in the queue, I and see. then the operator, the you know UFC PR person running it, will call your name, and the fighter can't even see you, right? It's just audio. They're looking into a computer screen, and. One of the bigger issues is the quality is quite poor. I'm yeah. sure you've seen some of these videos out there, so that really hurts. I mean, no one wants to watch 
13 minutes of blurry uh, Aljamain Sterling or whatever, right? It's just like, it's a, a turnoff. You want to see that, that better quality. You want to see the interviewer talking to the person. And it's just, uh, I think it's being reflected and kind of abused, but um, uh, am I grateful that the UFC is giving us time with these athletes at all? Of course, uh, it's better than nothing for sure, but it's just not, ideal at all i don't think you get that same emotion from the fighters they're under no obligation it's not like you're actually like staring at them and looking at them and asking the question and you can go off the reaction they're just hearing a voice and responding to it so there's not really that kind of personal more in-depth side of it i mean i know some of the fighters they'll hear a name pop up of a reporter and that'll kind of click them into a mode because they may know that person or whatever the case may be but yeah I, i don't love it um the fact that we, like I said, we get to talk to them is nice, but uh, I'm definitely keen for a return to normalcy on that front because it's quite static. I do know the fighters love it, though, because they basically have to do <laughs> nothing in terms of fight week obligations. It's show up, do one interview, make weight, and fight. So for them, I'm sure it's an absolute dream come true. Well, Mike, I appreciate you giving us this exclusive and uh, all of this time. Uh, you can follow him, Mike Bond, MMA on Twitter. He'll have coverage uh, throughout the weekend. Go check out all of his great work at MMAJunkie.com. Uh, Mike, thanks so much for uh, getting together here to catch up. And uh, our, our that beer will elude us. That We, we will make it at some point, uh, I hope, that you and I can uh, sit down. May, maybe with our mysterious third man. I hope he can join us. Over the next yes, couple of months yeah, as well. Serious third man needs to return, and we're not talking about way. <laughs> That's true. The way is always invited, of course. <laughs> Mike, thanks as always. All right, sounds good, John. Appreciate you having me.